0: Coming up next the book is reading poetry. <laughs> the Scarecrow reaps the babes from the cradle
1: as the children <laughs> 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 Guys, uh,
0: listener, I was going to try and start this podcast out by reading you some poetry by a great poet and maybe I'll just read you one stanza. <laughs> the scarecrow reaps the babes from the cradle as the children's soft feet patter through the snow outside the warmth of mother's light. They join the harvesters parade, dancing and jumping. They join the ancient throng of gypsies, parading through the village, the village at midnight. Parade of the ancient men, the harvest men. <laughs> that is a great poem that I am, can actually feel myself blushing as I read. Because it's possible it may or may not be written by someone who may or may not be me about 15 years ago. But not, I can neither confirm nor deny whether that's true. Uh, to be fair, 15 years ago would have put you in early high school. Early something high school, yeah. So, uh, yeah, that would have been before 9 11. Um, and my name is Nathan. It's cheeriness.
1: Yes. <laughs> 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 this is before Nathan's innocence was taken by the bleak, harsh realities of life.
0: We are the children the scarecrow has reaped, chained in his palace of ice. <laughs> That's another great line from this poem. And you may be wondering who the poet is. Well, it's me. It's Nathan Alberson, your humble and obedient host. I am joined by Jake Mensel and Brandon Chastine. Jake is the pastor who's a master of reading. That's another poem that What's I wrote. What's up? What's up, Jake? What's up? And uh, Brandon Chastine, uh, can you give us a quote from a Brandon Chastine poem off the top of your head? Uh, no <laughs> sorry <laughs> that's okay i did not tell you guys to bring poems written by yourselves but uh i did bring one by me and uh, this thing actually goes for two pages but i will not be sharing that with you in any case listener welcome to part two of our poetry discussion and let's jump right back in
1: all right guys round two so i guess since i started off round one i'll Keep moving. My second category is really just two poets, the English devotional poets. It's we've talked about them both already, I think. George Herbert and John Donne. Herbert is my favorite of the two, but Donne had the more standoutish. You know, I'd rather sit down and read Herbert of an evening, but if there's one to pick, you're but, gonna have to pick from Donne. I mean, and you can tell people
0: uh, what you do with a book of <laughs> Herbert. <laughs> <laughs> what do you do with? <laughs> You read it. Uh, no, 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 not, not what one does, but what you, in
1: fact, have done. Jake, where is your copy of Herbert located? My nightstand. <laughs> That's what I was getting I at. keep a copy of the, I don't know if it's complete works or if it's just uh, complete poetry and select prose or something like that. I should know. It's a beautiful copy. It's one of those every man's library copies on my nightstand of George Herbert. And I uh, I often, around bedtime, will read a Herbert poem or two. Or maybe more if I'm in the mood for it. Well, Just, just, to, just to
0: interrupt for a minute, if I may, yeah. I think maybe we should set these two guys up a little bit. So you've got both these guys. I think they were both...
1: The contemporaries, they died within like five years of each other or something Right,
0: like that. and Herbert is a clergyman, just a yes, good that's right. parochial or provincial pastor, I think. was uh,
1: He's saying he's Anglican. He would, I mean, he would be Anglican, but was he... he a
0: city pastor or a country pastor? I want to say he was a country pastor, but I don't actually Well, he know.
1: wrote the country pastor thing. Right. Um... So he's
0: probably a country pastor. Bust out. Dunwood was a... Uh bit of a rakish courtier kind of a guy that had all these love affairs and then he kind of repented towards the end of his life? I don't know when exactly. Yeah, towards the end dish of his life. Towards the end dish of his life and then he wrote all this great sort of uh, quote-unquote holy poetry. Um, Herbert his holy sonnets. His holy right. sonnets, all that kind of stuff. He's Rose most...
2: devotionals.
0: Right, the uh, most famous of which is uh, we got the title of our book from last year from For Whom the Bell Tolls, it tolls for thee, dear mm.
1: listener. That's a meditation.
0: That's one of his meditations. So he wrote, uh, he was boldly experimental with poetic form, with style. He was an innovator. Yeah. Um,
1: and so a lot of what he revels in and is something that I don't appreciate, which is just being really technical. He does a lot of technical acrobatics that um, are inventive or interesting if you care a lot about technical acrobatics.
2: Yeah, he's part of the metaphysical movement. They were all about what's called the poetic conceit which is a very complicated metaphor basically. Mhm. So just to, to, your poem should have a really complicated difficult to follow metaphor. So one of my poems I may read is in this tradition.
0: So we will be in suspense to
1: And when when Dunn pulls it off, I mean, there's nobody better at that sort of thing. But yeah. I just don't... You're saying Dunn's
0: highs are higher than Herbert's highs. Oh, yeah. Far Well, just away. to compare and contrast, I, d- I don't know if I did it successfully. Herbert is a much more simple, much, much more boring life. Yeah. You know, 0% love affairs. He's like a hobbit. Yeah, he's... Yeah.
2: Yeah, he it's hobbit poetry.
1: Yeah, I think that's... I think that's probably fair. And I think that's probably why I find him to be medicine for my... D- <laughs> right. <laughs> Wizardry? Whereas Dunn, like, lived in Mordor and then moved to Gondor and then... I don't know what. The fact is, uh, there's not really anything in Herbert that you can immediately pull out that compares with death be not proud, death mm-hmm. out shall die. D- do not ask for him. the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. No man is an island entire unto himself. You know, th- these things that... Uh, have just endured the test of time and um, shaped and shaped and shaped and shaped and shaped the way we speak, the way we think, the way we talk. So you had done wins if that's, if that's the measure. Um, so
0: really, I did Herbert pick kind of wins because he's the guy that you're actually going to read.
1: No, I'm actually going to read done. No, no. I mean like oh, before you go to bed,
0: you're going to grab Herbert off your nightstand. So for me, for me,
1: for me, yeah. Meaningful
0: for you as a person, it's Herbert
1: for me. Yeah. Well, uh, Herbert feels more like a friend. I think mm-hmm. I think that's part of it. He feels like a friend that brings some sanity to my topsy-turvy, turvy, topsy-turvy topsy turvy topsy turvy life and uh, and uh, some stability. I, he's just emotionally steady. I think and I think that's a part of why I'm attracted to him.
0: Um, well, and our listeners will get to judge because you're actually going to read a done, and then I understand. Mm-hmm. Never mind.
1: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so I'm going to read. <laughs> I'm going to read a hymn to God the Father, which I read. I remember reading it in high school. I remember reading it before I was a Christian, and I remember crying just the same. Wilt thou forgive that sin where I begun, which was was my sin? This is this poem. I'm sorry, Jake. (laughs) Go ahead. I really like this poem. You didn't know what this was?
0: I mean, I knew that this was a famous poem. I just didn't associate it with this title. You disappointed me. (laughs) No, I'm elated that you're reading this one. Good choice. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks. I'm sorry, listeners. Start over, please.
1: Without thou forgive that sin where I begun, which was my sin, though it were done before? Without thou forgive that sin through which I run and do run still, though still I do deplore? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. Without thou forgive that sin which I have won others to sin, and made my Oh my goodness, I hate myself. <laughs> you can do it. I don't know, I can't. <laughs> <clears throat> Wilt thou forgive that sin which I have won others to sin, and made my sin their door? Wilt thou forgive that sin which I did shun a year or two, but wallowed in a score? When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. I have a sin of fear, that when I have spun my last thread, I shall perish on the shore. But swear by thyself, that at my death thy sun shall shine as he shines now, and heretofore. And having done that, thou hast done, I fear no more.
0: Wilt thou forgive that sin which I have won others to sin and made my sin their door? If, if you've experienced that, if you know that, if you can think of people that you've led to sin, I mean, or introduced to sin. Or will thou forgive that sin which I did shun a year or two? Like, you became a Christian, and then, oh, yeah, well, I don't do that. And then you wallowed in a score, you know. Man, I don't know what else. I don't know what to, I don't have anything profound to say it about man, except for man...
2: It's very confessional. Yeah. I think
1: anybody who knows the Lord, who has seen his sin for what it is, knows exactly what done his. This is that you want to say that there are certain hymns and certain poems and certain things that you want to elevate. You
0: know that they're not inspired, but... They're you not say.
1: inspired, they're not scripture, but you just sort of want to say they might as well be. This is, u- this is the universal experience of everyone who's ever seen their sin for what it is and felt the disparity between them and God and also understood what God did through Jesus. All of the poems that I picked, actually, they all run in this vein of... Death and sin and sorrow, Um and, it, and they're also they're also all songs, and I didn't think about it. It's just where I gravitate naturally and uh, I don't know that I want to make too much of a virtue of that, but I do think if what you're looking for in a poet and in poetry is something that's going to show you what is true and what is beautiful in a way that you haven't seen it before, is going to be truly helpful to you. You could do a lot worse than finding poems that make you think on your own mortality and your own sinfulness before a holy God and help you feel the sorrow that you know you should feel and deepen your experience of that sorrow so that it drives you more and more to God and helps you love him and appreciate and rejoice and exult in his mercy all the more. And that's what this that's what this poem
0: does. I mean, I don't think we have we don't have time <coughs> to talk about this. I contend personally at least that all art is inescapably didactic and that great art is the art that trains your emotions to feel the right way. That's what a poem like
1: that does. Devotional poets of this era or time and place are, I think they're special in a way that lots of devotional poets aren't. They don't lose sight of God and wallow in their own sinfulness, and they don't lose sight of their own sinfulness and wallow, or not wallow, but uh, their feet are firmly planted on the ground. There's a sobriety, a moderation about them that makes for a deeper, richer expression of of real piety real devotional life real heart knowledge of god
0: yep i certainly think you can do better by reading these guys than you can by uh i don't know reading oswald chambers or the shack
2: the shack i'd say that a little bit better (laughs) than the shack Brennan, i believe you owe us i owe you my devotional poem we're gonna to go to Herbert now, so you guys can judge. Um, this is one of his what was neat about Herbert is he would sometimes do these poems that only part of the effect of the poem is actually seeing it on the paper. Is this is the mm-hmm. one that looks like a butterfly. This is the one those wings. On altar. Oh, it looks like yeah, 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 and he did Angel's wings. Yeah, he did um Easter wings. Yeah. And then he this is the altar. And so you see something similar to what Jake was saying, but what's going to there's the with Dunn it's much more confessional. You feel like Dunn is there with you, just crying in the poem. Or not not even crying in the poem, but you see him.
1: This is there's a rawness. There's this a rawness. Particular... That's a good word for it. He's there's a rawness that's not that going
2: to be there for. with Herbert. And I don't think it's because Herbert's tight-laced or anything. I just think that what you were saying, Herbert's much more... Well, let's read the poem, and then we can discuss it. So this is an altar, or the altar. A broken altar, Lord, thy servant rears, made of a heart and cemented with tears, whose parts are as thy handed frame. No workman's tool hath touched the same. A heart alone has such a stone... Is nothing but thy power doth cut. Wherefore each part of my hard heart meets in this frame to praise thy name. That, if I chance to hold my peace, these stones to praise thee may not cease. O let thy blessed sacrifice be mine, and sanctify this altar to be thine. So there's a simplicity to it, but you still have a self-knowledge there mm-hmm. he still knows himself he's he's talking and there's still imagery there um he's talking he mentions how the heart is a stone as nothing but thy power can cut the whole image of us being an altar that's cemented together from our broken pieces that the lord despite ourselves can sanctify to be his own it's very similar to what dunn was saying in his poem just in the very, in his um I don't know.
1: The, di- the difference is what Herbert will do is he'll say that fifty times, and Dunn will say it once. And Dunn's one time is worth the fifty. Worth fifty of Herbert. Herbert's <laughs> yeah.
0: that's the after- actual equation we figured it out. Yeah, one Dunn to fifty Herberts. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just don't think it goes to the. I mean, it's so f- pointless to compare these two guys. They're both brilliant, but so I'm not going to.
2: There's a difference in what they're aiming at. Yeah, that's all. With Herbert, there's the image of seeing the altar. So this one is one that you should look up and see on the paper. Yeah,
1: you need to see that one on the paper. He does that occasionally. And what is interesting about the one I picked and the one you picked is what I actually think is I picked the kind of thing that I feel Herbert actually does a lot, but Dunn just nailed it. And I think that you picked the kind of herbert poem that i don't like when dunn does it he does it he does that kind of thing a lot and i just but herbert it... does it well
2: here mm-hmm. yeah he does he, so he takes this idea of the altar and it's a conceit and he carries it through and it's it works so
0: and it's i don't want to make i hope this doesn't sound patronizing but i actually like herbert as hobbit <laughs> i think that's helpful because what this is is it's sweet and it's meaningful it does not carry me to the depths of human experience like dunn does but It's unfair to ask it to. That's not what he's trying to do. But,
2: yeah, and he also still manages to take you out of yourself. Yes, he does. He's saying, look, you're an altar. Your body, he's helping you remember that you are supposed to be as broken as you are, as disgusting as you are. Mm -hmm. You're still these little fragmented pieces that he's cementing together to make an altar to himself. And there's a sort of seriousness and responsibility that goes with that. So it teaches you, like you were saying. Mm -hmm. So It's good. And you do have to see it on the page. It doesn't make you want to tear your hair out and cry it can this poem has moved me before it depends on how i'm reading it and why and the state i'm reading it in mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's like I, yeah my heart is stoned yeah this is not written by and If i, mean, I have a chance to hold my peace i mean yeah maybe he'll make yeah so it doesn't say maybe you'll make it he says i'll let the so he's calling out let this blessed sacrifice be mine and sanctify this altar to be thine so and the one that follows right after this is the sacrifice where it keeps repeating line after line was ever grief like mine about christ oh yeah Samurai.
1: that's my that is my favorite herbert poem that is I di- where he becomes
2: more like done
0: well so we move on to um yours Oh, well, that's right. I still owe us a second. <laughs> but I'm going to give us a break from all this. Uh, so mixing it up for you folks, my er, my second poem does not come from one of the holy sonnet cycles or anything like that. My second poem is a the poem that was the most meaningful to me as a kid. I remember seeing this poem in the Walt Disney movie in which it is featured. And I had that song memorized. And that was a Walt Disney movie that we did not own on VHS, but that always really kind of scared me and intrigued me at the same time. That being Alice in Wonderland and the poem being The Walrus and the Carpenter by Lewis Carroll, which is now for something completely different. the sun was shining on the sea, shining with all his might, he did his very best to make the billows smooth and bright, and this was odd because it was the middle of the night. The moon was shining sulkily because she thought the sun had got no business to be there after the day was done. It's very rude of him, she said, to come and spoil the fun. The sea was wet as wet could be. The sands were dry as dry. You could not see a cloud because no cloud was in the sky. No birds were flying overhead. There were no (laughs) birds to fly. The walrus and the carpenter were walking close at hand. They wept like anything to see such quantities of sand. If this were only cleared away, they said it would be grand. If seven maids with seven mops swept it for half a year, do you suppose, the walrus said, that they could get it clear? I doubt it, said the carpenter, and shed a bitter tear. Oysters, come and walk with us, the walrus did beseech. A pleasant walk, a pleasant talk along the briny beach. We cannot do with more than four to give a hand each. The eldest oyster looked at him, but never a word he said. The eldest oyster winked his eye and and shook his heavy head, meaning to say he did not choose to leave the oyster bed. But four young oysters hurried up, all eager for the treat. Their coats were brushed, their faces washed, their shoes were clean and neat. And this was odd because, you know, they hadn't any feet. Four other oysters followed them, and yet another four, and thick and fast they came at last, and more and more and more, all hopping through the frothy waves and scrambled to the shore. The walrus and the carpenter walked on a mile so, and then they rested on a rock conveniently low, and all the little oysters stood and waited in a row. The time has come, the walrus said, to talk of many things, of shoes and ships and sealing wax, of cabbages and kings, and why the sea is boiling hot and whether pigs have wings. But wait a bit, the oysters cried, before we have our chat, for some of us are out of breath and all of us are fat. No hurry, said the carpenter. They thanked him much for that. A loaf of bread, the walrus said, is what we chiefly need. Pepper and vinegar besides are very good indeed. Now if you're ready, oysters dear, we can begin to feed. But not on us, the oysters cried, turning a little blue. After such kindness, that would be a dismal thing to do. The night is fine, the walrus said. Do you admire the view? It was so kind of you to come, and you are very nice. The carpenter said nothing but cut us another slice. I wish you were not quite so deaf. I've had to ask you twice. It seems a shame, the walrus said, to play them such a trick after we've brought them out so far and made them trot so quick. The carpenter said nothing but the butters spread too thick. I weep for you, the walrus said. I deeply sympathize. With sobs and tears, he sorted out those of the largest size, holding his pocket handkerchief before his streaming eyes. Oh, oysters, said the carpenter, you've had a pleasant run. Shall we be trotting home again? But answer came there none. And this was scarcely odd because they'd eaten every one. I remember being quite disturbed by that poem as a kid. It's
2: got a pretty dismal (laughs) worldview. But it says it in such a cheerful way. <laughs> so <laughs> cheerful. and uh, It's like Little Orphan Annie. I yeah.
0: I mean, just the, the, the callousness and the kind of uh, the sort of bureaucratic, uh, just sort of nasty unfeelingness of the walrus and the carpenter and how they're able to sympathize and they're sobbing as they eat the poor little oysters. Um, I never found that poem to be fun at all. I never found it to be uh, anything but quite a terrifying literary experience
2: well, those sorts of poems are fun for children there's one that a friend that we all know he sings that little orphan to annie mm-hmm. and it has those lines where it tells about the kids who wouldn't obey and so the Goblin gets them the album's gonna get you if you don't watch yeah. out yep and so it's just it's a part of the tradition of children's poetry yeah kids like so to be traumatizing scaring them you teach them by traumatizing right, right. So. <laughs> <laughs> you teach them by traumatizing them well i don't know i mean there's also just a playfulness to it. Yeah. Even the, though it is a dark poem, there is a playfulness to it which is a good quality in children's poetry. <laughs> yeah. So
0: Yeah, the the weird turns of anti logic, the I've always loved things that apply logic where logic doesn't apply. And this was odd because it was the middle of the night when the sun is shining, that sort of thing where it's simultaneously <clears throat> makes perfect sense and makes
2: zero sense. That's always been appealing to me. I think any poetry that helps whoever's reading it to a child be silly with a child is good because mm-hmm. adults have difficulty doing that right kids. <laughs> yeah i mean so. you almost can't
0: help but do the voices and the characters and, yeah you know well that's that um number three on the political countdown jake take it away so that was
1: your children's poem that was my children's poem but should we stick with that i was uh unhappy that I had to come up with last minute a children's poem to throw in here. So I think we're just going to stick in the in the vein of children's poems. I, I picked, uh, well, let me let me tell you the category that I picked. We'll start with that. I didn't have a lot of kids' poetry except, you know, I don't know, like maybe Dr. Seuss, but I didn't even really have Dr. Seuss. What I did have were uh, my great-grandmother sang nursery rhymes, all of the old nursery rhymes. Often versions that she's saying to me, I've found aren't the common verses or just little twists that I don't know where the divergence was. But I think even that's fun. And I, you know, when you're a kid and you you get the nursery rhymes or whatever, that version is the version and everybody else is wrong. So I think it's fun whenever I see things like that. So I was trying to find something uh, in that tradition of nursery rhymes and lullabies that I think is beautiful and profound and... Whatever in its dumb simpl- simplicity. Why did it stand the test of time? So I picked. Can you guess what I picked?
2: Ooh, uh, <laughs> there was an old lady that lived in a shoe. <laughs>
1: <laughs> old Mother Hubbard. No. no,
2: that's not the one you picked. Um,
0: and just to be, just so that I mean, Old Mother Hubbard did not live in no, a shoe. No, she didn't. She and her dog. <laughs> the old lady that lived in the shoe had so many children she did not Jake know what to do.
1: And Old Mother Hubbard. She lived in a
0: cupboard eating her
1: curds went and to the went to no. the cupboard to fetch her poor dog a bone oh, who's eating curds and whey oh no that was this little true. miss muffet is that the one you chose no no <laughs> all
0: right we, we need to keep guessing we're going get this brendan what uh, do you think it is Old king cole was a merry old soul he was a merry old soul uh, merry like to eat his little eat. jack horner roses Sadly are cool. red violets are blue uh, jack be nimble
1: uh, now y'all are jack sprat could eat no fat Maybe I set this up a little too much with the English nursery
2: rhymes. This is more of a lullaby. Uh, rockabye Baby. No. Uh, Winkin', Blinkin', and Nod. No, that's a good one. The Owl and the Pussycat. Winkin', Blinkin', my granddad would read that to us. Now you're making me all nostalgic for my past. Winkin', Blinkin', and Nod, man. one night when I the picked a wooden shoe. I picked Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Very nice. <laughs> My son Henry has me sing that to him every night.
1: At, I think at night, when you're that little, itty-bitty, you can have a really beautiful, poetic, transcendent moment in the darkness, dad or mom singing Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, and you, there's the star, you know? Yeah. There's a, it's an introduction to a world of that's way bigger than you, how I wonder what you are. Let's hear it. <clears throat> I'm eager to hear it after this setup. Here we go. <laughs> a b c d twinkle twinkle (laughs) little star how i wonder (laughs) what you (laughs) are up above the world so high like a diamond in the sky twinkle twinkle twinkle, little star (laughs) is that how your grandma did it how i wonder what you are (laughs) how (laughs) i (laughs) wonder what you are up above the world so high like a diamond in the sky
0: folks i think they're getting the lyrics wrong I, mean, up.
2: Cool. I sing this every night, man. It's <laughs> <laughs> how it goes. Little, little star, how I wonder, wonder what maybe. you
0: are. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Twinkle, twinkle, twinkle little, star, little star. How I wonder, I wonder what you are. When the blazing sun is gone. <laughs> when he nothing. Apparently, there's other lyrics according to Wikipedia. Yeah, when there's. I like, win. I'm already there, man. Oh, <laughs> when the blazing sun
2: blazing. is gone. When yeah. he
0: nothing shines upon. Then you show your little light. Twinkle, twinkle through the night. Then the traveler. You're not going to join me? No. In the dark, thanks you for your tiny spark He could not see where to go If you did not twinkle
1: so Twinkle, twinkle, little star Yeah, I
2: think we're better off just
0: with the first stanza Yeah, yep. there's a reason It's like You Are My Sunshine We don't need all those stanzas about <laughs> how the person died or whatever
2: Yeah The other night, dear, when I was sleeping <laughs> I dreamed you held me in your arms <laughs>
0: after that
1: so there's my there's my children's poem i will say to
0: that i had a friend who had little sticky uh glowy stars on his wall and i was really jealous of that friend because i thought stars were cool <laughs> <So> that was cool <laughs> when i was like well, yeah, fine. I was my like,
1: mom at my mom's house she we had a uh, glow stars on the on the ceiling in the my in brother the and I's bedroom
2: and so, Henry will look at the stars when we turn off the lights. So, he likes it. Oh, yeah. It's oh, that yeah. and the Itsy Bitsy Spider, because he really likes spiders. The one that came down the The one I flight? wanted to do is the Itsy Bitsy
1: Spider, actually, because that's the one that I think of my great-grandmother the most with. You know, she would do the Itsy Bitsy Spider, but then she would... She had, she had a crippled hand. Then after she would do the Itsy Bitsy Spider, she would, you know, play with her crippled hand on the table like a spider. And I would... <laughs> i smack it and kill it, and it was just a fun. It was just a fun little game that we played. Yeah. And
2: There's something about those. I never think of the itsy-bitsy like spider
1: that. without thinking of playing that game with great grandma.
2: So mine is kind of along the same lines. It, it makes me sad because I have now children who are all growing up, and um, I have Jack, who's going to be six in a few days. And so this is, is it Howl by Kerouac? It is Roy <laughs> And I'm going to read this to him on his birthday. <laughs> and then we're going to get wasted. Okay. <laughs> I suspected as <it> much. <laughs> no, it's Now We Are Six by the great A.A. Milne. Very simple little poem, but I think for any parent especially, it
0: just, I don't know. let here? This will be a good teaser for Milne uh, yeah. coming up
2: later this year. That's right. So it's now we are Now We Are Six. When I was one, I had just begun. When I was two, I was nearly new. When I was three, I was hardly me. When I was four, I was not much more. When I was five, I was just alive. But now I am six. I'm as clever as clever. So I think I'll be six now and forever.
0: (laughs) That one's about to bring me to tears, actually. (laughs) I
2: know. More more than done was. (laughs) And in in particular, is the fact that this poem in the book of Winnie the Pooh that we have comes right at the end. Yeah. And so you just know he, I mean, he, yeah.
1: It's one of those poems that he's drawing on a lot of. He set that up, yeah, big time, and he's drawing on a lot. And if you've read those Winnie the Pooh, by the time you get to the end of it, it, it crushes me. Yeah, <laughs> it's brutal. <laughs> it's the death of childhood. It's yeah. like what Toy Story wishes that it could yeah, be.
2: Yeah, yeah. Mm. and so you get here hearing. It's this, so I, and it's just the child saying, I'm going to be six now forever. And you see my, I see my kids and yeah, they think that, but I, I know it's not that way. And so my other poem that I have that when I, I'll, I'll read to them when I want to make myself sad, it's a Yeats poem along the same lines. Can I read it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It starts out weird. You just got to hold on. Let's, I want to read along. what is it? A cradle song. It's all for this last stanza because it gets to that. So the child is thinking, so from the child's perspective, it's sweet. But then from the adult's perspective, it's sad that Winnie the Pooh poem, because you know yeah. that they're not going to stay sick. And you know that this little child that I'm singing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star to, he's not going to be that way mm. forever. He's going to grow up in this moment's like that.
0: And it'll be gone. <laughs> I think you should, you could have read that one in our Transients of Life. Uh...
2: Yeah. No, if it's. It would have fit in. So, like I said, the, get, we've got to get over the first two stanzas. They're weird, but here we go. The angels are stooping above your bed. They weary of trooping with the whimpering dead. God's laughing in heaven to see you so good. The sailing seven are gay with his mood. I guess those are the planets. I sigh that kiss you, for I must own that I shall miss you when you have grown. This is that one stanza right there that just is like a gut punch. So. I think the stupid standas actually do a nice job of setting it up. They do, you're, yeah, because they're just sweet, and they're like a little silly lullaby you're singing to your kid. Well, it's like the childish things that the yeah. kid
0: perceives, you know, yeah. angels. And guy, yeah, it's he like, sees you so good. The same it's the end. kinds of things you think about as a kid when, you, when you're trying to be pious.
2: And then you've just said the lullaby to the child, so you reach over and you kiss them, and you tell them, I'll miss you when you've grown. And It's just a fact Every parent deals with it. You've got this little baby, and they're not going to be that way. They'll grow up to be a teenager, and then they'll leave your house. And Gross. So, yeah. There you go. <laughs> Who knew children's poetry could be so sad? Oh,
0: man. That melon is devastating. <laughs> well, my number three kind of ties in in that I've seen it anthologized as a child's poem, along with its sister poem, which... Both of those poems have actually been set to music uh, by a friend of ours, and uh, one of them is on a album that you can purchase called...
1: Repeat the Sounding
0: Joy. Called Repeat the Sounding Joy by the Good Shepherd Band, a very good Christmas album which I recommend to you, which uh, cont- contains uh, one of our mutual acquaintances' rendition of The Lamb by William Blake. But the one that I like, being a dark, emo kind of a guy, is not The Lamb but The Tiger. Which I'll just read it. Like I said, I've se- I've seen this anthologized as a children's poem, but I think it's a William Blake was a weird guy. Can you give us like a just a quick He did those paintings, the woman in front of the sun. He was into like apocalyptic weird spirituality yeah, kind of
2: He was his own thing. He he was good really good friends with Samuel Coleridge and they were the weirder side of the romantic movement. And Blake was pretty independent and just did his own thing. He wrote this really dense weird apocryphal cycle of epics and stuff that mixed norse mythology in and it was he had his own he was an illustrator so he had these images that he would do i've got one of his illustrated books of poetry at, our, at home and it's just weird stuff that must be worth thousands of dollars oh yeah it's actually one of the originals i hope you keep that safe somewhere <laughs> yeah, keep it secret and they keep it safe but yeah. he wrote these poems, he wrote this book of poetry called Songs of Innocence and Songs of Experience. And this would be so. a song of experience. Yeah. The lamb would be a
0: song of innocence and the tiger would be a song of experience. And they would
2: always go together. So the lamb is coupled with the tiger. Right. So the tiger which I'm folks all my
0: poems are just like if you look, if you Google like top 10 poems of all time or what does the poet society say are the best poems. Those are my poems. You have Pastor Menzel to thank for convincing me to not be ashamed, but just say, you know what? My favorite poems are boring poems. They're not boring poems, but they're everybody's favorite poems because they're great.
1: So what you going to do? They're great for a reason. Yeah.
0: These are classics, you know, Oz- Ozymandias, the tiger. These are just like are great poems and i'm sorry to be lame and predictable but they're my favorites tiger tiger burning bright in the forests of the night what immortal hand or eye could frame thy fearful symmetry in what distant deeps or skies burnt the fire of thine eyes on what wings dare he aspire with the hand dare seize the fire and what shoulder and what art could twist the sinews of thy heart and when thy heart began to beat what dread hand and what dread feet what the hammer, what the chain, in what furnace was thy brain? What the anvil, what dread grasp Dare its deadly terrors clasp? When the stars threw down their spears And watered heaven with their tears, did he smile his work to see? Did he who made the lamb make thee? Tiger, tiger, burning bright In the forests of the night, what immortal hand or eye Dare frame thy fearful symmetry? I assume, symmetry. Originally, it's symmetry, 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 death, death frame, thy faithful symmetry. Now, I just sound like I'm doing. Micah
2: Cain. Uh, tiger, Tiger. I think the actor was William Blake. It was probably Michael <laughs> Uh Well, I'm not sure he would have too much. It might not. It may be an intentional off rhyme.
0: I don't know. It happens. That's a weird poem, but and I can see, I can kind of see why it winds up in children's anthologies because it has that kind of bouncy and it's about a tiger and everything. But it's actually about what? What's this poem about?
1: It's about try. God. Yeah. It's yeah. about. It's about innocence and experience, the beauty of the lamb, which you didn't read, is he connects the lamb to the child, to the lamb of God. And then he turns around, and the real line of the poem is, did he who make the lamb make thee? It's...
0: Really about the question of evil or the question
1: the of... The problem of evil yeah. and pain. Why yeah. why is nature red in tooth and claw is supposed to be... What's that supposed to say to us about God? What's that supposed to say to us about... We, we look to the lamb to teach us about God. What does the tiger have to say? And he's just here, he's just asking the question. More or less, eh... He's done a little more than asking the question. There's some, there's some accusation going on. I think N- nevertheless, the f- why it's great is because yes, the answer is yes. <laughs> he, who Who made the lamb, made the tiger, and he is pleased with both of them. And you better understand both of those things when you come to God.
0: Right. And Blake was a mystic and he was weird, but I think he does evoke some of the power of creation here in just a a cool way. I mean, just imagining what it must have looked like, what Genesis 1 must have looked like. When the stars threw down their spears and watered heaven with their tears, did
2: he smile his work to see? And the. Yeah, that's a weird image. Yeah. When the stars of Heaven threw down their spears, and watered it's a
1: rays heaven. of light. Yeah, that's you know? nice. It's what like happens that. With it's their tears. Now, so when, yeah, well, what? What are the tears? Why tears? Are they sad because God made something so brutal and fierce? Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't. Is, I just, con, is there is there a contrast set up between like the benevolent stars and the
2: the monster who yeah, made the tiger, the uh, who dared lamb. to frame?
0: Yeah, I think I probably
2: just need to read the lamb. <laughs> well, yeah. That is that is one of the things with a good poet's going to use their images in, a very, in an intentional way. And so by saying that the spears from the stars and by saying that they're watering heaven with their tears, these are images of war and of sadness and of destruction and something terrible, or if not terrible, at least something dangerous.
0: Well, William Blake was wacko, but taken in isolation. I just think these two poems are, well, I'll just give you guys a Little Lamb. Little Lamb who made thee, dost thou know who made thee? Gave thee life and bid thee feed by the stream and o'er the mead. Gave thee clothing of delight, softest clothing, woolly bright. Gave thee such a tender voice, making all the vales rejoice. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? Little lamb, I'll tell thee. Little lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name, for he calls himself a lamb. He is meek and he is mild. He became a little child. I a child and thou a lamb. We are called by his name. Little lamb, God bless thee. Little lamb, God bless thee. That's just like a really sweet, almost childish poem and then put with this, you know, and then one of them is called A Song of Innocence and one of them is called A Song of Experience. Um, I don't actually know what William Blake was, what he thinks the answer is. I don't know how accusatory I think it's necessarily being. I, I think he's asking the same questions that God asks of himself in the end of Job. Uh, The psalmist often often asks, and I think maybe if you take what we know of Blake and put it together, you get something weird. But just looking at the poem as a poem, I've never taken it to um, be—and the commentary that I've read of it has not necessarily taken it to be— Accusatory. Accusatory.
1: Well, I've not read commentary on it. I was just—I didn't think that at first, and then I thought, you know, maybe there's something more to it here. Because he's using the word here? yeah, the, I haven't I haven't read this poem in a long time yeah. or thought about it in a long time, so I'm trying to wrap my mind around it here in the moment. Well, especially well, it's much easier to do with is much. It, there's nothing more difficult to do that with than with poetry. Mm. Yeah, I kind of have to circle around it.
0: And Blake is a cloudy, weird, mystical guy who didn't necessarily want us to know what he thought. Yeah. Um, so that could be a failing of his. But it's a gorgeous poem, and just the yeah. the first stanza, "Tiger, tiger, burning bright." Just putting those four words together, what genius that is. I mean, tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forests of the night. Just those two two lines lines, evoke the power and the mystery of wild exotic creation better than all the jungle books all the tarzans all the conrad i'd say you know just anybody that's tried to get up that mountain of evoking the exotic other the transcendent that's within nature blake hasn't beaten those two lines yeah um
1: that's why faulkner said those who can't write poetry write Short stories, those who can't write short stories, write novels. It's not that he's disparaging the short story or the novel. It's that if you do poetry, to do poetry well is to accomplish in one turn of phrase what it takes somebody else, a short story, what it takes somebody else, a whole novel. Or their entire oeuvre to get at. To get at. Yeah. That's the beauty and the difficulty of it. For me, when those, it's
0: truly great, those two lines do that more than perhaps any other poem on my list. Just of like, "Tiger, tiger, burning bright in the forest of the night." I think there's a jungle, there's Africa. It's out there right now. It's thousands of miles away, and there's this ferocious creature that God made that's prowling through the darkness, even as we speak what a bizarre and crazy and interesting world God made that that should be happening while we sit here recording a podcast. Yeah, and it does, I mean,
2: what he's saying with the what hands dare do this, it's... had just seen the lamb this little lamb and now you're seeing the tiger and it's it's experience it's teaching you something that's scary about Mm -hmm. god the fact that yeah he is the one who made this tiger and he's the one who made the lamb too so yeah i mean whether he meant it good or not i think there's
0: a there's a powerful and profound lesson in there well that should bring us to our number four jake you want to lead us off
1: i picked another genre Another uh, category, and that's the English hymn tradition. It's impossible. It was impossible to pick one uh, because there's so many great hymn writers and poets. And you don't normally think, when you think of poetry, you don't normally think of hymns unless you're thinking of bad poetry. Hymns generally don't come to your mind as something that is great or profound. But I think that one of the great things about hymns is, is how practical they are you sing them and they lodge in your memory and your mind and in your heart and there's a simplicity about them that is elegant and beautiful in its own way when it's done well so i could have picked anything from the canon of Isaac Watts i could have i thought about picking amazing grace but what i ended up picking was a hymn called abide with me by henry francis light and the reason i picked it is because i, I th- it's just the hymn that i find myself for a long time now gravitating towards. If I sit down at a piano, it's what I'm going to play about 98% of the time. It's just what's going to come out. And part of that is because if ever I sit down to the piano, it's in my living room at night after the kids go to sleep. And this is a, a nighttime kind of song. But it's, it's right in the theme of everything that I picked. Yeah, I wasn't intending for everything to be about death, but, but that's just the way it went when I was, it must have been the mood I was in. <laughs> When I was when I was thinking thinking through what I wanted to pick, so this is abide with me, abide with me, fast falls the eventide, the darkness deepens, Lord with me, abide when other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh abide with me, swift to its close, ebbs out life's little day, Earth's joys grow dim, its glories pass away, change and decay, and all around I see, Oh, thou who changest not, abide with me. Not a brief glance I beg, a passing word, but as thou dwellest with thy disciples, Lord, familiar, condescending, patient, free, come not to sojourn, but abide with me. Thou on my head in early youth didst smile, and though rebellious and perverse meanwhile, thou hast not left me oft as I left thee. Unto the close, O Lord, abide with me. I need thy presence every passing hour. What but thy grace can foil the tempter's power? Who, like thyself, my guide and stay can be? Through cloud and sunshine, Lord, abide with me. I fear no foe with thee at hand to bless. Ills have no weight, and tears no bitterness. Where is death's sting? Where grave thy victory? I triumph still if thou abide with me. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life and death, O Lord, abide with me. I hope and pray that that last stanza is my prayer for my death. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Mm -hmm. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks, earth's faint shadows flee, and life and death, O Lord, abide with me. That's more than anything, the prayer. I mean, I know that you can say that about lots and lots of things, but when I come to bedtime, when I come to the end of the, of a night, that's often my, my, my thought, my prayer, and my hope. And of course it's that way because my fear is that it won't be.
0: It strikes me what a wonderful heritage that was and how great it must have been for people living in the times before the radio where their primary source of music would have been, for many of them, the church. And these would have been the songs, the popular songs of the day, the songs that they sang, the songs that they played on the porch, the songs that they learned. Just how cool that would be in a certain, you know, to have simple biblical truth like that just be the the stuff that lodged in your brain instead of uh, Lady Gaga. (laughs) Lady
2: Gaga. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I will speak to that and say that one of the poems that I didn't think to put on this list but the, but that profound it moved me deeply and made prof, that that profounded me. <laughs> First it profounded me, then it moved me deeply, and then it made me love Christmas is uh by Longfellow and if you've ever read a Christmas article by me, I tend to Bring this up uh, in pretty much everything I write about Christmas, which is Longfellow's poem of Christmas bells. I heard the bells on Christmas Day. They're old, familiar carols play. And I think Longfellow was out of fashion now, a little bit out of fashion maybe even in his time because he is so simple and kind of... Sing-songy. Sing-songy. But that's kind of what I love about him, Like, like what Jake's talking about with Abide With Me. It's something that lodges in your head and is powerful because of its simplicity, because of its twinkle, twinkle, little starishness. That I won't read the whole thing, but the stanza that's always stuck with me is "And in Despair. I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then peeled the bells, more loud and deep, God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. It'd be very easy to make fun of that, because it is so simple, and the rhyme is very strong, and... It's sing-songy, but, man, those those two stanzas have made me cry many times Mm, just to think, oh, everything seems hopeless, and then, oh, yeah, God is not
2: dead, nor doth he sleep. And there can be strength to that style. You remember it, for one, and for two, it's simple, and that's not bad.
1: Here's what I really think. Poetry has always lent itself to song. It's always been bound up with song, and the psalms were songs. The best poetry is lyrical. It's not always the case. I know that. I'm. they are generalizing, and that's okay. One of the reasons I wanted to pick a hymn was because it never comes up in discussion. The hymns never come up in discussions of poetry because they're so pat, you know. And people mock how sing-songy and pat they are. And that can there be such a thing as a good hymn? And I just think, you know what? People have been singing hymns for thousands of years, and little children. Have grown up learning and singing hymns. And I can't quote a whole lot of poetry, but I can quote a whole lot of hymns.
2: I agree with you. Poetry, when it's sung, mixes the best of two things that we were created to do, which is to sing and also express and worship so there's a reason poetry at its root is very musical because i we're we're musical creatures we're meant to sing so i don't think you're wrong at all there yeah and there's a lot of hymns like god moves in a mysterious way his wonders to perform he plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm that's amazing Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's as good as any
0: william cooper and it strikes me that really all three of us should have chosen my soul among lions songs as our top five favorites Oh, yeah, to
1: tie-in. I really like this version of, these two versions of Psalm 5 and Psalm 6. Yeah. one of my favorites. This Psalm 8 is amazing. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Who wrote this one?
1: My, my list. Sonnet 18, Ozymandias... In this rendition of Psalm 8, <laughs>
0: it's great. Well, I was, uh, I did want to say to what you were saying, ah, I mean, it's a very Chestertonian kind of a thing, but w- you realize that the more profound you become, the deeper you become, the wiser you become, the simpler you become in certain ways. And I'm not saying I've achieved it by any stretch of the Im- imagination, but the great truths are the same truths that s- can often sound cheesy, can often sound sing songy, can often sound obvious, you know. God is love is a cliche, and it's profound, the most profound thing you could say. And that's something that you just have to realize when you're reading poetry is so much of it has been adopted into our language, so much of it in you know, some of the most profound stuff is going to be the kinds of stuff that you'll just see on Pinterest with, you know, some flowers behind it or something like that, and um, get over it. Truth and beauty are simple and childlike often. All right, my number four. You're number four. I'm sorry, I'm acting
2: like we're counting down, so I keep saying two when I mean four. You're number four, sir. I decided to do a representative of the sonnet, which I think is the something or other.
0: Crash course in a sonnet. What's a sonnet? It's a form of poetry, so...
2: Yeah, it's a form of poetry that is very particular in the way it's crafted, so it can sound sing-songy too, but when done well, it's a great form of expression, (laughs) so Shakespeare was the master of it. You you, have 14 lines, each line is broken um, into 5 feet, which are iams, so it's iambic pentameter. So that's how many syllables? Ten. Ten syllables per da, line. Da, 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 da. Depending on what kind of sonnet you are writing, you have a set rhyme scheme. But usually, you have a set of three to two movements within the first twelve lines, and then the last two are a couplet. That's called the turn that wraps it all together. It's like the bow on top of the present. So it gives you an idea,
0: and then maybe it gives you another idea, like a, yeah. a
2: quatrain and an idea, and then there's two right. lines at the end. That... Yeah, if you've ever read a uh, Aesop's fable. Where they have the moral at the end, kind of the same principle. So, but it's a very rigid form
0: that you have to get everything right, and you can do amazing things within it.
2: Yeah, and so I did not choose a Shakespearean sonnet. Though I he chose was the master. Yeah, though he was the master, I chose um, the sonnet from John Milton. So this is he was going blind towards the end of his life, and then he wrote this sonnet. So it's called "When I Consider," sonnet number nineteen. Maybe I'll just, you know what, I'll kind of read this in a way where I'll stress the rhyme so people can hear it. Sure. Even if it sounds a little silly. When I consider how my light is spent, here half my days in this dark world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide, lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent, to serve therewith my maker, and present my true account, lest he returning chide, doth God exact day labor, light denied. I fondly ask, but patience to prevent that murmur, soon replies... God doth not need either man's work or his own gifts who best bear his mild yoke. they serve him best. His state is kingly, thousands at his bidding speed in post or land and ocean without rest. they also serve who only stand and wait. So this is him coming to terms at the end of his life with the fact that he is going blind. He will no longer be able to see his page to write. He feels like his gifts are all spent and useless, and he's realizing that that's fine.) <laughs> that he can still serve God even in his, when things seem like they're being taken away, it's not necessarily the case. So,
0: And he did, in fact, write a lot of his best stuff. Blind, yeah.
2: Blind, or just, just dictated about. Dictated it to his daughter with his head leaning over the back of his chair. He's a weird dude, too. Most <laughs> of these guys were very strange. <laughs>
0: yeah, that's a beautiful sonnet. I don't know what else to say about it. When I consider how my light is spent, ere half my days, in the dark <sighs> world and wide, and that one talent which is death to hide, logged with me, lodged with me useless, though my soul more bent. I imagine this one might be a little bit more difficult for people to follow. I would recommend if you've not read it read it before that you just you look at it and don't be embarrassed about that. I usually have to read a poem many more times than once before it makes any sense to me because 'Cause I'm an idiot I guess, but you might be an idiot
2: too.
1: Well often the best poems have layers. The deeper you go it- The more time you spend with them, the deeper you you can go, the more you you can see.
2: There's a lot to admire in the really good poems like this. One is the meaning that's coming across, but then also just the inner workings and the intricacies that go into the way that they're playing with words off of one another. Fun to see. It's like looking at a painting and seeing all the little details that don't come through at first read.
0: Yeah, this is a good one for that because it's got all these little things.
2: uh... Yeah, this this is a masterclass in, like poetry writing Mm. so you have enjambment and all these things that are working together inner rhymes and echoes and all this stuff it's it's like opening the back of a a pocket watch or something and seeing all the little intricate pieces
0: that go into making it work just the weird alliteration kind of mirroring i don't know
1: all the little tiny gears everything fitted together to present you with a hand that moves smoothly without so
2: and so when it's red you don't hear it Mm -hmm. yep you go back and you look at it and you start analyzing it. And John Donne is the same way. Mm You may start analyzing some of his holy sonnets. I I got to do this with high schoolers once and it was fun. Is it just you keep seeing more and more and you're just like, man, this is insane. All the, just the detail that goes into this.
0: You can spend your life going down weird bunny. You can go crazy. People do. Um, yes, I, I would recommend that our readers or our listeners read this one and look at it and just pay attention to things like day labor or light denied, you know, just the alliteration there. Very simple thing, but you know, that's, that's one little sprocket in your, your pocket watch, but there's, just,
2: there's a lot of fun to have you had there and it's, it's good to so go enjoy it. Yeah. And even if you have like a dull scientific mind, you can, you can
0: pry this one apart and see all the little yeah, gears. Yeah, please and, you guys. Yeah. yeah, you can enjoy it. Dissect it. Um, yeah, dissect it. Kill it. Dissect it. Mount it. <laughs> Look what I did. Yeah. <laughs> Look what I did. <laughs> <laughs> Who is this metaphorical person? <laughs> like, a young She's serial killer? <laughs> <right
1: here. Yeah. laughs> a psychopath. Look at what I did, mom. <laughs>
0: I killed the dog. Ah... <laughs> uh, That's good stuff. And that's the kind of quality that you get on the booking that you don't get anywhere else, people, folks. And now you get the quality. Have we all said our number two? You haven't said yours. You haven't said yours. Oh, so that means we're doing the second coming and coming, baby. Hey, it's kind of like a sonnet, isn't it? Yeah. Folks... Listener, sometimes you just like something. This one is, I like it just based because I'm, a, I don't know. Let's yeah, just hear it. What's not to like about it? Yeah, what's not to like? Well, probably a lot. <laughs> <laughs> the second coming by William Butler Yeats. I said third time to
2: make an appearance.
0: Yes, yes. Yeats is a hero of Brandon's, as he's talked about, and also somebody that he you know, maybe kind of had to repent of a little bit. And this might be why. Um, this is exactly why. This is exactly why. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming... Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of spiritus mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs, while all about it, real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that twenty centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle, and what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born? Pretty cool.
2: What beast does slouch towards Bethlehem? To be I don't born? know. I think it's like
0: the 20th century. <laughs> I think so. In, in-
2: industry, or yeah, the apocalypse, like the nastiness the... of modern yeah life. Things are falling apart. It's like we were talking about with. T.S. Eliot, at least he's just not quite as nonsensical about it. <laughs> well, you probably know a lot more about this poem than I do. I think it
0: was written in 1919, so it would have been after World War I, yep. uh, which was a devastating war, a devastating war for people because uh, before World War One, we could still kind of believe that in every way and every day the world was getting better and better, and then World War I happened, and it sucked.
1: It um, was the war to end all wars. It was the war right? to
0: end all wars, and you had people on their horses charging like they were a cavalry, like it was old-fashioned war and getting torn apart by machine guns and mustard gas and it was just it was was a horrible sort of wake-up call for civilization like oh yeah this is this is what uh actually everything's not getting better and now we have the machinery to actually destroy mankind yay so that's world war one and i don't know that that's exactly what yates is writing about here but that's gotta be in his mind. I think there's some Irish revolution at the time that was in his mind probably and this thing pro- started out with all kinds of political allegories and then he kind of stripped it back and just made it into this apocalyptic thing I'm a bobber.
2: Yep. Yeah, it's just the evocative power of this image. Yeah. The central image. It's
0: Yeah. He was a mystical dude and yeah. there was was not a thing that was Christian about him. I think this poem is the first coming is, is Christ, I guess, but the second coming is uh, this horrible sphinx-like beast that's slouching towards
2: Bethlehem, moving its slow thighs. Is that what he's moving its yeah. slow thighs?
1: That's a good image. Which yeah, great.
0: yeah. Uh, There's nothing really I can particularly defend as a Christian about what this poem says, but I chose it because I cannot tell a lie. It really speaks to that dark, apocalyptic, mystical part of my soul and the imagery and the words. I mean, how many books have titles that are based on, you know, Things Fall Apart is a book, The Center Cannot Hold, The Blood-Dimmed Tide, The Ceremony of Innocence, The Best Lack All Conviction, While the Worst are Full of Passionate Intensity. It's just like beautiful phrase after beautiful phrase and what rough beast it's our come round at last slouches towards bethlehem to be born 20 centuries of stony sleep it's just uh
2: yeah just jam-packed full of great poetry <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yep it's just <laughs> great strong imagery inevitable phrasing it's all there what it all adds up to may not be
0: <laughs> may not be much but you sure has heck enjoy the ride. Yeah, baby. <laughs> that's all there is to say about that. Sometimes you just like to see a master craftsman be a master of his craft. You know, that's what's fun about an Alfred Hitchcock movie. It's not saying anything that you particularly care about. If it is saying anything, then it's saying, probably saying something that you don't exactly agree with. But you enjoy an Alfred Hitchcock movie because you just enjoy good filmmaking craft. And that's why you enjoy The Second Coming, because you just enjoy good poetic craft. And that's all I have to say about that one. So I guess we have to say our number one
1: poem. This is in a countdown. <laughs> this is not my number this one poem. So now Jake is
0: going to tell us his number one favorite poem of all time. The poem that he thinks is better than all the other poems we've said tonight. And all other poems in general. And it's coming up now, <laughs> right after this break. <laughs> all right, and we're back from the break because there wasn't a break. Jake, your number one poem of all time. Folks, it's not really his number one poem. These are just some poems that we
1: like. The idea is to get you excited about poetry. And that's what we're doing. Jake. Well, if you look at the categories that I have sort of been working from, the traditional anonymous, like... I want to say folk, but that's... Uh, no, well, I, no, it's just it's stuff that's just deep down... Ingrained and yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the word is, but stuff that I had trouble talking about at the beginning, I still have trouble talking about it now, and it's because it, it, it to me is sort of the quintessential. It always was, and it always will be, and it's special because. It's been there. And then the sort of marching through chronologically the those English devotional poets and the English hymn tradition. And in there, the lullabies and the nursery rhymes. And last but not least, we have the modern folk singer.
2: The bard himself. <laughs> <laughs> the
1: Typically, nope. people, when they think of the bard himself, would think of William Shakespeare. The but, immortal bard. This but, is the new bard. The, the, the,
0: the mortal <laughs> bard of...
1: Worth. Well, uh, so... Wait, what did you say? What? The immortal
0: bard of... Well, Shakespeare is the immortal bard of Stratford-upon-Avon. Which...
1: He's, like, from Minnesota. So this guy is the, the mortal bard of... Minnesota. <laughs> Minnesota.
0: This bunny trail was worth it! All right, go ahead.
1: <laughs> well, so what you have in the in the 20th century and the 20th century folk movements is... Are guys that are con- not quite our contemporaries, but but in the span of history, our contemporaries who are taking and synthesizing and uh, working with these great and from these great traditions. So I picked a, a Dylan, a, a Robert Dylan <laughs> himself. <laughs> yes, Robert Robert Dylan was was definitely his birth name. I'm guessing it was, wasn't it? Is it was Robert Zimmerman? Or,
0: oh yeah, Robert Zimmerman, Nobel Prize winning Robert Zimmerman.
1: Yeah. Dylan, I found Dylan when I was in college. A friend of mine turned me on to Dylan. The song that did it for me was Don't Think Twice. It's all right. It's still probably my favorite Dylan song, but I ended up picking what I thought was a very underrated Dylan song and something again that I I love and I admire for its sort of folkish simplicity. But then Nathan informed me that it's a Well, actually, I had forgotten this whole exchange that we had had months ago. Oh, and before you say it, we
0: should let our listener kind of play a roll along. I sent you a text that said, hey, guess what
1: the only Bob Dylan song is in the Norton Anthology of Poetry? And you said that knowing that I had been stuck on a particular Dylan song for about a a year or two, has sort of been circling around it as one of my favorites.
0: But I also knew that you wouldn't guess it. And in fact, you guessed Every possible candidate.
1: Including the worst Bob Dylan song of all time, which, as it happens, is forever young. As our listeners know, is forever young. (laughs) Um, Is that? Yeah, yeah, that is the worst Bob Dylan song. I think it is. Um, It's hard to, I mean, there are a whole lot of Bob Dylan songs.
0: So you guessed every candidate, and I'm sure our listeners are furiously guessing along with you right now, and then I gave you the hint, like, I don't know what hint I gave you. I said, like, it's your favorite, and you'd never think that it would be the one, and you're like, oh.
1: It's, drum roll, boots of Spanish leather. (laughs) (laughs) So I'll read it. I'll read it, but you should just... Get on Spotify or whatever you listen to and listen to it. Are you going to
0: read it like
1: in a... you No, I'm not going to do that. Okay. That would be terrible. Why would I do that? Asked an answer. Just wondering. <laughs> oh, I'm sailing away my own true love. I'm sailing away in the morning. Is there something I can send you from across the sea, from the place that I'll be landing? No, there's nothing you can send me, my own true love. There's nothing I wish to be owning. Just carry yourself back to me unspoiled from across that lonesome ocean. Oh, but I just thought you might want something fine, made of silver or of golden, either from the mountains of Madrid or from the coast of Barcelona. Oh, but if I had the stars from the darkest night and the diamonds from the deepest ocean, I'd forsake them all for your sweet kiss, for that's all I'm wishing to be owning. That I might be gone a long time, and it's only that I'm asking, is there something I can send you to remember me by to make your time more easy passing? Oh, how can, how can you ask me again? It only brings me sorrow. The same thing I want from you today, I would want again tomorrow. I got a letter on a lonesome day. It was from her ship a sailin', Saying, I don't know when I'll be coming back again. It depends on how I'm a feelin'. Well, if you, my love, must think that away, I'm sure your mind is a Roman. I'm sure your heart is not with me, but with the country to where you're going. So take heed. Take heed of the western wind. Take heed of the stormy weather. And yes, there's something you can send back to me. Spanish boots of Spanish leather. So it's a Casey didn't get the sense of it. It's a exchange between a lover and his girl and she's sailing away to go to Spain. And she keeps saying, Hey, don't you want a souvenir? And he's saying, No, I just want you And finally he she has to write him and say, I'm not sure when I'm coming back and he's very sad.
2: (laughs) Sure. You know what? Send me something. (laughs) Well I think um, it's more
0: resigned than that. I think it's like, send me some yeah.
1: Well, so I mean, we could probably sit and talk about why he picked Spanish boots of Spanish leather, and probably Bob Dylan was just like, I don't know, <laughs> Spanish boots is Spanish leather rhymes with weather, <laughs> you know. But um, there are actually a lot of songs that reference Spanish leather. Bob Dylan's great hero, Woody Guthrie, has a song about uh, that has a woman who wears boots of Spanish leather in it, I think, or maybe they're gloves. I don't know. I I prefer to think that he asked for something. Really nice. That's going to last a long time.
0: Oh, uh, You're a ro- much more romantic person than either of us. Brennan I <laughs> thinks he's mad, <laughs> just being spiteful. Just being spiteful. And I figured it was like Dylan. Okay, often- send me a you know send me a souvenir from the gift shop since you don't love me anymore.
1: Dylan or his narrator is often spite. Don't think twice. It's all- you just yeah. kind of wasted my precious time. But don't think twice. It's all right. It's one of the most
2: bitter songs.
1: I like to think of this as being more. I like to play up the brokenheartedness of it.
2: Well, your interpretation is much more beautiful than mine. Mm-hmm.
1: So. I like to think of Tiger Tiger as being a pious song. <laughs> I don't know. I, like, I just really like this sort of thing. This is my. This is because I liked it. That's why. Right. <laughs> well, fine. <laughs> I give no defense
0: for <laughs> no, this. That's great. I have to say for me, um, and if there's one thing that the book thing is meant to teach you folks, is that everything's relative, nothing matters, and uh, poetry's about how you feel. Um, <laughs> for me, I actually don't like it as much because it is so primal folk. You know, it feels like he just ate Woody Guthrie and then vomited out this kind of perfect folk song.
1: Well, the the, the song that I started with, The Parting Glass, he rewrote in a song called Restless Farewell. And that was on The Times They Change Changing. It was one of his first... He, he did a lot. A lot of his early work is taking these traditional songs and saying, I'm going to write my own version of that. Or I'm going to take and borrow this one metaphor or whatever, and it's...
0: Well, I think a lot of great art is that way, actually, and I think he's in good company. If you read through like I've got here the Norton Anthology of Poetry. If you read through this, you'll see guys who are just adapting what other guys have done or commenting on what other guys are done or build on it, and it's very, you know, they're not worried about plagiarism. It's just like, this guy did this, and now this guy did this, and you look at great artists, and that's what, you know, none of Shakespeare's plots or anything were new. He's just giving it the shakespeare twist brandon Chastine. uh. so this is
2: seamus heaney's poem digging this poem encapsulates a lot of what we've been talking about it's dealing with memory and with the relationship to past and the nature of art and it has a central metaphor and image that it's dealing with between my finger and my thumb the squat pin rests snug as a gun under my window, a clean rasping sound when the spade sinks into gravelly ground, my father digging. I look down till the straining rump among the flower beds bends low, comes up twenty yards away stooping in rhythm through potato drills where he was digging. The coarse boot nestled on the lug, the shaft against the inside knee was levered firmly. He rooted out tall tops, buried the bright edge deep to scatter new potatoes that we picked, loving their cool hardness in our hands. By God, the old man could handle a spade, just like his old man. My grandfather cut more turf in a day than any other man on Toner's bog. Once I carried him milk in a bottle, corked sloppily with paper. He straightened up to drink it, then fell to right away, nicking and slicing neatly, heaving sods over his shoulder, going down and down for the good turf, digging. The cold smell of potato mold, the squelch and slap of soggy peat, the curt cuts of an edge through living roots awaken in my head, but I've no spade to follow men like them. Between my finger and my thumb, the squat pin rests. I'll dig with it. Yeah. So, like I said, this encapsulates a lot of what we've been talking about. And here, I like the central image of digging. The pin becomes his shovel as he tries to deal with his relationship to his father and his grandfather. Now he can be like them, men like that. And, um,. I think as men, it's a lot of we all deal with those things, and um, that's a nice turn with the pen becoming a shovel. He'll Mm -hmm. dig with it.
1: How long do you think he spent on that last line debating, even if he should say it or not? A long time. I, when I read this poem, part of what I like about it is I imagine myself to be him and sitting there with that last line and thinking, "Should I cut this?" Yeah. Does it need to be here? Should it be here? Yeah. No. Is there a better way to say what I'm trying to say? Is there a better way to make my pen,
2: my shovel? I think it was a good decision on his part. I like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You nailed it. But you're right. You can see the work that went into this poem. There's a tightness a... in
1: it. I bet you if he were still alive. Well, I don't know this. I wonder if he's... I could just imagine him still wondering if that was the right thing to do. It know.
0: was. Shemus... Seamus, what do we decide? Seamus is Seamus. I'll dig with it. Yeah, it's
1: definitely Seamus.
2: Because yeah, it's. <laughs> I see what you're saying. It's like it's calling too much attention to the metaphor. Yeah, it's obviously. It's like if you guys didn't get it, my pins, my shovel, I'll dig with it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I feel know. like. I feel like. He's striking a blow for the common man somehow.
1: <laughs> there's something about it that makes me feel like,
0: yeah. Well, you can imagine the modernist poem that would actually end between my, th- my finger and my thumb. The squat pen rests, and that would be, like, real brilliant and deep because exactly. it'd be like, it's the shovel, man. Don't you get it? No, you didn't get it because you're an idiot. But if you got it, then you know it's the
2: shovel. Yeah, there's a, there's always a conversational aspect, such heating, which is great. Well What I'm struck by... Which is why he was so fantastic for Beowulf. yeah Yeah. i'm just
0: struck by and hearing you read this how much i expected you to keep bursting into an irish accent or a brogue because it just reads so much now the potato yeah (laughs) and slap of soggy pete (laughs) the squat pen rests folks the poem that i was gonna read which is not my favorite poem but it was a representative poem and it ended up getting saved towards the end because it fit in with the folk theme it has been redacted We're not actually going to be reading the poem Because I, we actually just recorded a big segment Which you'll never hear Where I read it and we talked about it As we talked it through we realized
1: We don't actually want to read it The point of that is there are some things that are dangerous And it's just not worth Right so we're not going to tell you what it is Because uh, some things are just too, they're dangerous
2: Right you Don't need to know
1: And This is dangerous and, You don't uh, go wallow in filth in order to understand
0: filth Amen. So what was the mysterious, forbidden, dangerous fruit that I withheld from your lips? You'll never know. But boy, does it taste good. I can tell you that.
1: if Eve only had the wherewithal. Yeah, I ruined it. If
0: Eve only had the wherewithal. the beginning of the day was written and produced by a meeting and officers you know what it was guys listen to another one if you want it if you want to know who wrote this and produced this and performed it you can listen to any number of podcasts and and you'll see because i say it at the end of every podcast and i'm not going to say it for you this time uh you can look it up if you want to